Okay, so uh, this morning we meditated on Psalm 19 and David's reflection on the glory of God revealed in both creation and scripture. And then we discussed how uh, we, God's very image, have failed to glorify God as we should. Creation does what it to do. Scripture does what it was made to do. We do not. This evening I want to turn to Psalm 51, another psalm of David, arguably the most penitent passage in all of Scripture, to go uh, deeper into the last point we discussed this morning. King David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. What a lofty title that is. A man after God's own heart. And yet what's so interesting about this man after God's own heart is that he is um, perhaps the perpetrator of one of the Bible's most infamous transgressions. I don't want to assume everyone is familiar with the story, so let me give you the context here of the psalm. David was once on the rooftop of his palace. From that position, he could uh, look down on the city and he notices Bathsheba bathing. Inflamed with lust, he sends for her, he forces himself upon her, and she becomes pregnant. From there he goes to great lengths to cover up his uh, sin, which culminates in having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. It's your stereotypical case of abusive power and cover-up with one key difference. When exposed by the prophet Nathan, when his sin was found out, David doesn't write a non-disclosure agreement. He writes Psalm 51. Perhaps the most contrite and repentant words recorded in Scripture. This is the essence of men and women after God's own heart. Not sinlessness, but how we respond to our sinfulness. I'll give an example of what I mean that comes out of London. I had to think of something, London, if I'm preaching here. So here it is. Uh, the Times, you may have heard this story. It's a, it's a classic one. The Times of London once asked prominent thinkers of the day to submit a response, to have kind of this essay discussion in the newspapers, which I feel like we should get back to. What a wonderful tradition that was. Uh, but they were having uh, these essays written in from prominent thinkers of the day to respond to one question, what's wrong with the world? Well, a Christian apologist, G.K. Chesterton, who, if you're familiar with Chesterton, his brilliance was matched only by his wit. He was asked to submit to this discussion, and it was definitely the shortest answer offered. This is what Chesterton said to the question, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. Sinners after God's own heart do not view the world's problems as the external but internal. The enemy is not the world. The enemy is staring at me in the, wind, in the mirror. The holy war of Christianity is a war against oneself. Our family was recently in another global city, New York City, and we had the opportunity to tour the September 11th Memorial Museum. If you ever are in New York, I highly recommend uh, that experience. It's, it's haunting in the most appropriate ways. And one of the that they do very well at this memorial and museum is help you understand the mentality of the 9-11 terrorists. 
And what they do well is they, uh, they avoid the um, uncharitable and simplistic take that paints Islam with kind of this broad brush of terror, which is extremely unfair to the vast majority of Muslims who would condemn September 11th attacks. If you don't like to be viewed uh, through the lens of extreme Christian craziness, then don't do the same to our Muslim friends who are everywhere in this lovely city of yours. Instead, the museum demonstrates the unique complexity of al-Qaeda's extremism, which culminated in those uh, attacks, how they were truly convinced that uh, Western occupation in their homeland, along with the decadence of Western culture, was taking over the world, and that made Western society enemy number one in their minds, and thus worthy of jihad against the West in general and America in particular. Well, did you know that Christianity has its own form of jihad? The word simply means striving or struggling against the enemy of one's religion. And though Muslim scholars and traditions disagree, obviously, about how that should be interpreted and practiced, the extremism of 9-11 is by far the minority position within Islam. But nevertheless, it is agreed that there should be some form of a struggle against the religion of Islam. And in many ways, every religion has that to an extent. There is a struggle against some enemy out there. And Christianity would actually agree with that concept. But here's the key question. Who is the enemy of our religion? According to Christianity, it's me. It's you. I am the chief of sinners. Thus, the holy war... The jihad of my religion is against my sins. What does it mean to be men and women after God's own heart? I am offended by the way I have offended God's own heart. And that is what is on display in Psalm 51. It follows a threefold pattern. I want to look at each of them in detail. Here's what we see in David's response to his own sin. Contrition, petition, ambition. Contrition, petition, ambition. Let's start with this contrition. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So there is a degree of conviction that everyone shares in common. One of the truest signs that we are all made in God's image is our sense of moral obligation and remorsefulness over our failure to meet that obligation. We we have these this moral instinct inside of us all. We feel bad when we do bad things, particularly, and this is the key, when we get caught doing bad things or when the consequences of doing bad things catch up to us. And what this shows us is that our intrinsic morality as image bearers of God, that itself has been twisted by the reality of the fact that we are also fallen image bearers of God, meaning this, even our moral compass is now sinfully selfish. We feel bad over sin because of the way it affects us or the consequences of it, or the way it hurts those that we happen to care about. 
But there's a unique form of conviction introduced into our experience when we are born again, to use the language of Jesus. When we are given a, a new heart concerned ultimately about God's heart, our eyes are opened to a newfound conviction and we become bothered, irrepressibly so, that our transgressions are first and foremost against our God. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What an interesting statement that is. My sin is ever before me. The conscience all humanity shares doesn't speak in such ubiquitous terms. My sin is before me when I'm caught, when I do something really bad, when the consequences catch up to me. But David says, my sin is ever before me. How so? David explains, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, once we realize that our sin is against God, then we become aware of our sin's pervasiveness. That which seems harmless and inconsequential suddenly becomes profoundly serious. There is no such thing as insignificant sins, even if by our own estimation nobody is harmed, nobody knows, Still, it is not insignificant for all transgressions are against God, whom we have transgressed against you and you only have I sinned. Now, this God-centered view of our sins may it seem first to diminish the significant damage that sin causes to others. Against you, speaking to God, against you and you only, I can hear the objection from my friends who maybe aren't Christians And it's this, you Christians are so obsessed with confessing your sins to God, getting right with God, salvation with God, 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 God. What about the actual people that are harmed? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Did David not sin against them? And I think in many ways that may be a fair critique of the Christian church and minimizing the damage that our sin causes to others. But if there is a critique to be made, it's in our to understand and apply this God-centered approach to our sin. Rightly understood, this view of sin reveals how harmful it truly is. You see, without God, why should we not mistreat others? Without an ultimate standard of morality and justice, are we not licensed to exploit and harm and misuse and abuse others for our own personal gain? Listen, David is the king, okay? In his time, the king could take what he wants. Who cares about a seemingly insignificant Bathsheba and Uriah? Well, the answer is God cares. They are made in God's image. You harm them, you harm God. And so a God-centered contrition rightly applied leads to a neighbor-centered contrition as well. It gives moral grounding to that vexing moral question, why should I care about others? Sinners, after God's own heart, say, I care about what God cares about, and God cares about everyone made in his image. And so a good test of whether we truly believe that our sin against others is ultimately against God is whether our apologies to God overflow into apologies to others. You can't have one without the other. And so why don't we, maybe just we who claim to have a heart for God, um, love God, take sin against God seriously, why why don't we just pause and take that test now? 
Are you known for a contrite and apologetic lifestyle? Or is it just when you're caught, when you face the consequences of your actions? If you believe your sin is against God, then your sin will be ever before you, like David says, which means your apologies will be ever flowing from you. But it doesn't just end with this contrition. Next we see David's petition. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Six verses of David pleading begging in literally every way he knows how for God to do something with his sin. And again, this is rooted in a God-centered view of sin. If you remove God from the moral equation, then it's as simple as making things right with those that you have harmed. We apologize. We counter our bad deeds against them with good deeds for them and things like this. But, What if every wrong committed against others is in fact a wrong committed against God? Worse yet, what if the unseen thoughts, words, and deeds that seem to have no consequence are actually eternally consequential in the eyes of God? What if my sin against God is, as David says, ever before me? Well, now we have a problem on our hands. We have to make things right with God. And I'm sorry, this is an impossible task. Your only hope is that God will make things right with you. Thus David says this, Cleanse me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity, do not cast me from your presence. That's all we're left with, friends. That's it. Begging, pleading, crying out to God to do what he does not have to do, indeed what he ought not to do, make things right with us. With respect to old-time religion in the American South, which I come from, it's constantly telling you to get right with God. That's not happening. The question is whether God will get right with us. Well, I have really, really, really good news to announce this evening. News you may have heard before, but you need to hear it again. News David announces in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. Here's the good news for you, O weary sinner. All you have to offer God, the sum total of your religious contribution is your broken heart over your sin. That's all you have, and that's all God asks of you. Can you give him that? It seems easy, but it's actually not. It's counterintuitive. It's a counterintuitive invitation that requires an uncomfortable level of humility. We are conditioned to hide our shame, not expose it, to justify our wrongs rather than admit them. And so if God were to ask you to justify ourselves before him, to bring him our resume of goodness and hide from him our blemishes, then that's something we would be glad to offer him. 
But that form of religion is actually what God despises, as he says in the psalm. What he will never despise is a broken and contrite heart. Can you give him that? I want to suggest that as difficult as that humility may be for you, it's something you're longing to do. Is it not so exhausting trying to justify yourself as a good person? To defend, to hide, to excuse your inescapable immorality, to perform enough morality to counter your bad morality. What an exhausting life to live. Well, our psalm is offering the way out of that game. You could just give up. You could just give God what he wants, which is that you have nothing to offer him but a broken and contrite heart. Sinner, it's okay to be a sinner so long as you bring that to God and ask him to make it right. And that's exactly what he will do. Indeed, exactly what he has done. Out of the ruins of David's heinous sin would come a savior. And I do mean that quite literally. Bathsheba is named in the genealogy of Jesus, which is such a God thing to do, is it not? A broken and contrite heart God will never despise is made possible by a Jesus who was despised and rejected. Our sorrow and grief over our sins is answered by the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. The begging and pleading of David in Psalm 51, the begging and pleading of every broken and contrite sinner has been heard. More than that, it has been answered. The sins we bring to God have been handed to Jesus. On the cross, he died for them. Then he was buried with them. And then he rose from that burial, leaves sins behind in the grave forevermore. He's alive, but your sins are dead. The most haunting part of the 9-11 memorial in New York is this section devoted to the victims. What they do, it's, it's, it's brilliant architecturally what they do. They have at the center uh, this dark and somber room that you enter into. And slowly, methodically, the images of every single victim are projected on the wall. One by one, a face appears and a solemn voice just reads their name out loud. There's only so much you can take in before you just have to leave. But literally all day, every day, without ceasing, in the heart of of Manhattan, there's a dark room recounting the victims of that tragedy. I want you to imagine a similar room devoted to your life, recounting the tragedies that have come from your story. One by one, the harm that you have caused is detailed for you to see. It would be too much to bear. You would want to close your eyes and plug your ears But that would accomplish nothing. The litany of your failures would carry on without ceasing, whether you're willing to face it or not. But the other option is to just face it, to own it, to come undone 
in the presence of your sin and allow it to forge in you a broken and contrite heart to where all you have left to do is to bring it to God and cry out with David, have mercy on me, O God. That's all I have. If you will do that, then all those tragic images of your failures will give way to one image and one name. A man hanging from a cross would appear and a singular name would be announced, Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners, and then it would all be over. Actually, not quite over because there's one last step here that must be mentioned. What would be your response? Leaving that room where Jesus places the image of all of your failures. We've seen David's contrition and petition. This gives way to his ambition. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, that God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's what David's saying. Save me, God, and I will spend the rest of my life telling others what you have done for me. Sinners, after God's own heart, proclaim to the watching world the saving love of God's own heart. Your story is no longer a story of self-promotion, but God-promotion. Your previous life ambition to show the world how impressive you are is replaced by a life ambition to show the world how impressive your Savior is. And so I'd like to close by doing just that to all of you. Friends, if he can save me, I promise he can save you. He's that good. That's not false humility. I mean it with every fiber of my being. If you only knew me. If only you could see in me what I see in me. I pastor a church and I sincerely believe without an ounce of insincerity, I am the chief sinner of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. And if Andy were here, he'd say the same thing about this church. But here is what is so astounding about a community of men and women after God's own heart. Every single one of us would argue the same, wouldn't we? Every single one of us would argue with G.K. Chesterton saying, actually, I'm what's wrong with the world. We don't read Paul call himself the chief of sinners and say, whew, at least I'm second. No, instead we say, we read Paul's word and say, that's only because Paul never met me. What an odd religious community Psalm 51 forms. Not a competition over who's the best, but over who's the worst among us. But it's a useless competition, saints, because our Savior has silenced that argument with the definitive answer. Actually, I took it all. Martin Luther provocatively says that the cross, Jesus became the greatest sinner the world has ever known. Why? Because everything we have done, anything you can name, he became. And friends, anybody can get in on this. Anybody. If you will just tell the truth about yourself, you can discover what David discovered, what countless saints have discovered. It's true. You are a sinner. But you too can be a sinner after God's own heart. Let me pray.
Oh, Jesus, how can we not end this Lord's day in thanksgiving to you? Lord, we repent. We are sorry. We bring to you our broken and contrite hearts, knowing this, that you never despise them. Yes, we are ashamed at what we have done. You are not ashamed of us. You are not disgusted by us. You are not turned away from us. You love us. You have forgiven us. You have done for us what David pleads for in this psalm. You have washed us. You have made us clean and pure. And you will never cast us away or take your Holy Spirit from us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for what you have done for sinners like us. May we tell that story to a dying world desperate for that salvation. Lord, may it be the ambition of our life to tell this sinful world, if he can save someone like me, he can save you too. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.